As we do each week, I remind you to take your Bibles and again remind you that it's very good to have them open and before you, especially when we're dealing with longer passages as we will be this morning, beginning in Acts, or I should say Isaiah chapter 63. You'll find that on page 739 of the Pew Bible that is before you. Uh, given where we are, nearing the end of our study of the book of Isaiah, I thought it would be helpful, and I think it's very much related to what we're talking about this morning, I thought it would be helpful to define for us two uh, very familiar words that we hear often and certainly will hear about this morning. Those words are grace and mercy. They are, I trust to you, Familiar words to your ears. We speak of them often, and they are found throughout the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments. But what do these words mean? Grace can be defined, as many have, this way. God's unmerited favor or the riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. That is, the Lord giving to us that which we do not deserve. Solia gratia, the grace alone cry of the Reformation, was one of the greatest cries against the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church in those days. By grace alone, the Reformer said, are we saved, not of man's works. And so that doctrine was discovered or rediscovered during the time of the Reformation. Mercy, in many ways, can be a term that's used interchangeably in the Bible to speak of those same blessings and the favor of God. And yet, most often, and I think the distinction is important, that mercy is often better described and understood in the general broadest sense as that which God withholds that we actually deserve. If grace is giving to us that which we do not deserve, mercy then, I think, very helpfully can be seen as God withholding from us that which we deserve, namely his wrath and his judgment because of our sins. Now we see both of these beautifully come together in a very familiar passage as well in Ephesians 2. You don't need to turn to it, but this is a classic passage on the really the distinction between these terms, mercy and grace. Listen to the distinction as it's unfolded in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead, Paul writes, in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is, what we deserved was the wrath and judgment of God because of our sins. But then you have this wonderful verse, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have been saved. And he raised us up, he goes on to say, seated him with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. There they are, side by side. Mercy, God being rich in mercy, withheld his judgment upon us, but instead gave us grace, which is something we did not deserve. And grace refers to the blessings and the kindness and the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. Well, in Isaiah, we have seen both mercy and grace. Grace all throughout our study, beginning especially in verse or chapter 40 through 66, this study that announces the good news of the gospel through Isaiah, the blessings and grace and favor of God that he shows upon his people. And mercy, 
the mercy of God withholding his judgment. In our most recent study last week, in the first six verses of chapter 63, we've focused mainly upon God's wrath and the mercy by implication that is ours because we are not the ones who are the objects of his wrath in those verses. The objects of his wrath, if you remember in the first six verses of chapter 63, are those who come from Edom as the watchmen look out and see this victorious warrior approaching. It's from Edom that he's coming, representing all of the rebellious nations of the world who have ever existed. Isaiah is looking at the great and big picture of rebellion on a world stage. Edom represents it all. And he says he's coming from Edom, having destroyed his enemies. By implication, we, his people, are not the objects of his wrath and judgment, but rather of his grace and ultimately of his mercy. And so we're going to continue to see it even in the verses we look at this morning, which this entire section is a prayer of the prophet Isaiah. There have been other prayers of Isaiah. Sometimes we refer to them as songs earlier in chapter 33, for instance, in chapter 25. There are times or or places where we see Isaiah almost begin to pray or at least sing in praise to God. But here, certainly by every judgment, we have the longest uninterrupted prayer that Isaiah prays in this book that bears his name. And so it is a little bit longer, but I'm still going to ask you to stand because you'll be sitting for a while. But please stand. As we read these verses, verse 7 through the end of chapter 64, 63, 7, beginning the prayer through the end of chapter 64. This is God's word. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and of his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled and like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that nations might tremble at your presence. When did you, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. 
Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, you are indeed the potter, we are the clay. Have your way with us, we pray, even as we come now seated before your word, blessed by your spirit, that we might have understanding, and an understanding that we might walk in righteousness and holiness of life that your name may be glorified in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You remember the question, you may remember the question we began with last week, what kind of God, what kind of God is this with whom we have to do? What kind of God is this that Isaiah speaks of? Well, we saw again in those first six verses that he is a God of great wrath and of vengeance against sinners, against all of those who are opposed to him and stand as his enemies, represented again as those who come from Edom, which represents all rebellious nations that have ever existed. It's a, it's a picture in Isaiah of the rebellion, the natural rebellion of mankind against the Lord. And we saw earlier in our study before in chapter 62 that there is a work, a great work of the watchmen on the city walls. The Lord tells us and reminds us that he has placed watchmen on the walls. And when we come to chapter 63 again, we see the watchmen calling out to the people and noting this one who is approaching them. He is one who is covered with the blood of his enemies. It was, as we saw last week, a graphic picture But it is an important one, as we noted, for he is not only our Redeemer, through whom we receive all the blessings of salvation that the Lord has promised to us, but he is also a powerful warrior who defeats his and our enemies. And that's the picture there in Isaiah 63. And we need both. It is not enough that we have the blessings of his grace through the work that he accomplished for us, Jesus, On the cross, we need a savior, a victor, a champion who will defeat our enemies, lest they continue to plague the church, his people. And there is coming a judgment, we've noted. There is a day appointed for that once for all final judgment that Christ will himself execute when he comes in his glory. And that's really ultimately what Isaiah 63, the first six verses are referring to in that picture. Now, as I've already said, the remaining part of chapter 63 and all of 64 really comprise a prayer, a prayer by the prophet as he speaks for the people. And the people for whom he speaks are not generally the people, but the remnant of his heritage, the faithful, the ones who continue to look to him. Two things before we look at this prayer in its entirety quickly. Note, first of all, it is a response. It's a response of Isaiah to what the watchmen have just spoken of in the first six verses. It's his response to seeing the wrath of God poured out upon his enemies, the enemies of God's people. 
In fact, it is the watchman's duty to do this, to call out, to warn the people. And it is equally the watchman's duty not only to warn the people, but you may remember in chapter 62, they are also to give him, that is God, no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Until his church is firmly established, Christ returns and comes again in glory to establish the new heavens and the new earth. The watchmen on the walls are to give God no rest until he establishes his kingdom upon the earth. And that's what we're called to do as well. We noted that in our study of chapter 62, that while it has a primary reference to Isaiah and the other prophets, the apostles, and the teachers and evangelists of the New Testament, it is also for every believer to stand as a watchman on guard and praying fervently that God would establish his people upon the earth. The prophet is praying in this sense, and I hope as we look at this passage, we'll be able to see how important this is and how it really is a picture of giving God no rest. But secondly, the the prayer that we're going to look at this morning also leads to the conclusion of the whole book of Isaiah. In fact, the next two chapters, chapter 65 and 66, that we'll look at in the coming weeks, really are an answer to this prayer. If you look at chapter 65, you see the Lord speaking immediately in verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. The Lord is responding directly to Isaiah's prayer in these chapters. He's going to set out what his purpose and plan is to Isaiah and to the people. As E.J. Young, one great commentator on Isaiah says, very helpfully, in chapter 63, verse 7 through 64, 12, the prophet, as a representative of the people, prays to God, expressing, expressing thanksgiving and confession as well as beseeching God to be merciful to his people. Chapter 65 and 66 are then, in effect, an answer to this prayer. The apostate Israel, those who reject the Lord, are themselves to be rejected, and only a devout remnant will be preserved. That's what we're going to learn in chapter 65 and 67. God's wrath, his judgment, will come upon some who are there in the midst of his people who are rebellious against him. But for his remnant, he will show mercy and will preserve them. And so let's turn our attention to this prayer as we note again and remind ourselves about what prayer actually is. I remind you of the acronym. Most of you know it. If you don't, you ought to know it. It's a very helpful acronym. It's ACTS, A-C-T-S gives us the main elements of prayer consistent with the prayers that we see in God's word, including this very prayer of Isaiah. The A stands for adoration. We begin our prayers with adoring God as who he is, his attributes, what sets him apart from us. That leads automatically, as we see so often in our service each week, as we move from adoring God to confession of our sins. Because in the presence of a holy God, we recognize and immediately see our sins. And so we confess and acknowledge our sins. As we think of God's mercy to us as sinners, his forgiveness through Christ, we move through T, which is thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for those blessings, as well as all the physical blessings that we enjoy and that he provides. And then finally, the S of this acronym, supplication, stands for uh, the offering of our request to God. Now, this understanding of prayer really has its roots, I think, in the Reformation itself. The Reformers, as uh, noted as they are to be great theologians like Luther and Calvin and so many others, were also men deeply involved, deeply committed to prayer. They recognized that without prayer, there would be no Reformation, no revival in any age. But it's prayer and seeking God's face faithfully, persistently giving him no rest that guided the reformers in everything that they did. Luther famously said, prayer is the air in which we spiritually live. Imagine like oxygen in this room and in everywhere we go is the air in which we breathe and we live without it, we die. 
He said prayer is that spiritually. And so when we're prayerless spiritually, we're weak and frail. Luther was right, and he lived that out in his life as he so often gave more and more time for prayer as he got more and more busy in his life. He noted to his uh, understudies and those like Melanchthon who were with him, I have more to do today, he said, so I need to spend more time in prayer. That's not the way we think, but it's the way the reformers, without uh, exception, thought. Calvin noted this with regard to prayer. In prayer, we both communicate and commune with our Father in heaven, feeling our transparency in his presence. And like Christ in Gethsemane, we cast our desires, our sighs, our anxieties, our fears, our hopes, and our joys into the lap of God. He famously wrote that prayer is the, the literal, if you will, ascending into the lap of God as our Father to, to speak and whisper in his ear all of our concerns. The intimacy of prayer, the importance of prayer was noted by all of those who were part of that reformation. A generation later in the 17th century, the century that marks some of our own doctrinal uh, statements that we hold, you have this in the shorter catechism. What is prayer? Prayer is the offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with the confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. The Heidelberg Catechism, something that we rotate uh, throughout the year as we move back and forth in our opening uh, catechism questions that begin each service. What is or why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only, only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing Ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. It's a very important question and answer. Uh, the most important part of our thankfulness to God, and he only gives the gifts that are ours in Christ when we constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for them. And then it goes on to say what belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by him. First, they say, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only who has revealed himself in his word for all that he has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and our misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Thirdly, we must rest on his firm foundation that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. Another great question and answer worthy of our meditation, but a favorite definition of many, and one of mine as well, comes from John Bunyan, who authored Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a treatise also while imprisoned, as he did Pilgrim's Progress while imprisoned, and he wrote it on prayer, and this is what he wrote as a definition again of prayer. And you see the similarities here. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God hath promised or according to the word for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. I love that part for the good of the church that our prayers, as you see it in Isaiah here, he's praying for the church here, the church under the old covenant, the church of the faithful gathered by God now in captivity. Remember, he's writing to those captives, but there's a remnant to whom he's writing. He's reminding them of God's mercies and he's calling them to be like himself, faithful, persistent, and not to give God rest until he establishes his church in the earth. And what that meant in his day and in the days to those of whom he writes, of those to whom he writes, is that they would be returned from their captivity again to Jerusalem, that he might work powerfully again among them for his own name. 
So all of this, if you heard all of those and you put them together, you see common themes running through them. And that's what we see in Isaiah's prayer as well. And so four things to note, and we're not going to go through every verse. I trust in the hearing of these verses. You've noted some of these things already, but let me highlight the four things I think we see, elements of his prayer that ought to be elements of ours as well. The first stands out to me from the very beginning, verses 7 through 14 of chapter 63, and that is simply thanksgiving to God. Again, I remind you of the Heidelberg Catechism, the most important part of thankfulness, which God requires of us, is prayer. Think of it this way. You you and I can never express thankfulness to God except that we pray. There's no other way that we have to communicate with our Father in heaven but through prayer. If we are not praying, then we are thankless in everything that we do. Prayer is that expression, and they rightly say the most important expression of thankfulness which God requires of us. And so you see this at the very outset in verse 7. Isaiah begins this prayer, and all of this, again, is a prayer. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. How are we to be thankful? It is by counting our blessings, by recounting the mercies, the grace, and the favor of God towards us. In the immediate context, I think Isaiah is taken up by the picture of God's judgment of the first six verses and acknowledges that that judgment, which is terrifying, did not fall upon him or this people whom the Lord, nonetheless, even in their captivity, have preserved. And so he's immediately drawn to considering and thinking about the steadfast love of the Lord You go through these verses, you can see it. The great goodness that he has shown to the house of Israel. The great compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The declaration that they are his people. That they are his people, his possession. That he was in all of their affliction, afflicted like they were. That's very much like uh, Paul experiences in the book of Acts at his conversion. Paul or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was persecuting the church, but Jesus took it, we would say, personally. And God is telling us here through Isaiah that when God's people were afflicted in the times of old, during the exodus from Egypt, he was afflicted as well. He had pity upon them. He lifted them up. He carried them all the days of old. The, the talk of the uh, picture here of the exodus their deliverance in carrying them as on eagle's wings. This is the, uh, the uh, prophet here, Isaiah, remembering, calling to mind the things which God had done and the many mercies that he had shown to them over those many, many years. He goes back in verses 10 and following that despite their rebellion against him, where he became literally, verse 10, their enemy, This enemy of verses 1 through 6, the enemy of the wicked, he became that for them in their sins. Nonetheless, he remembered his covenant. He remembered his providences. He delivered them by the parting of the sea. He stretched out his glorious arm using the right hand of Moses that the waters were divided. All a picture of his deliverance for them. This is all him calling to mind everything that God has done so that his heart would be stirred unto thanksgiving. And that's really what he's doing in these verses. And so prayer, as we consider what prayer is, includes as a fundamental part, thanksgiving to God. You need only to think back in your own life and how God's hand has, uh, can be traced throughout your life. I've often encouraged you and myself to do this as you uh, consciously remember his hand of providence when he called you to himself, the, the whole way in which in his providence he worked in your life to bring you to that very place. You can go more broad than that, and we should on this, for instance, the Reformation, uh, where we celebrate God's work. We can rejoice and give thanks to God that he did not leave his church in darkness 
in the 15th and 16th centuries, but raised up men who would reclaim the truths that were lost in that time of darkness. And we stand on their shoulders. You and I are the recipients of that period of time. Our understanding of the grace of God, his mercy, sovereign in every respect, comes from the Reformation. And as I've said to so many people, uh, as we talk about these things, that we are as dependent upon God to understand the doctrines of grace as we are to understand the gospel itself. It is all the work of God's grace, and it's all a reason to give thanks to God. And so like Isaiah, we are called to give him thanks Secondly, and moving through this more quickly, you'll notice in verses 15 through 19 of this chapter, you have a plea, a plea to God, a prayer to God. And it's marked by these words, look down from your habitation from heaven itself. Remember the, the, the perspective of Isaiah and, and really all of the Bible is that God lives, if you will, above us in heaven Above, look down then, the perspective of his God looking down from his throne, from his holy habitation. It's a plea for his ongoing favor and grace that God would continue to show mercy to us. The context here is God is uh, looking down upon a people in captivity. The whole focus of this section in verses 15 through 19 is that he would deliver them from their captivity and bring them back to his holy city, Jerusalem. You see that in verse 18, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled and like those who are not called by your name. Here it is for Jerusalem's sake, for the church's sake under the old covenant, that God would renew his favor and show them again his grace, and his mercy. And all we see in the previous section that we already noted, it's all for one purpose, that his name would be glorified, that his name would be glorious on the earth. That's why they're praying this, to restore them from captivity, to show again his mercies. Notice the the plea here in verse 16 especially. You know, the Old Testament often has been criticized by some and saying that God is never referred to as the father of his people. Well, here we see very clearly, though it is primarily a New Testament doctrine that comes to its fullness in the New Testament, the fatherhood of God through the Son, Jesus Christ, it's very much present in the New Old Testament. Here, Isaiah appeals to the fatherhood of God. That's a covenantal term and relationship that God has entered into. He has made them his children. He has become to them their father. He is their redeemer of old. And he appeals on the basis of his fatherhood to them, that he would renew his favor, that he would again shine upon them in his grace and mercy. That should be a part of our prayer as well, especially as we see in our own day, the the church in so many places languishing, in weak teaching, weak theology, weak worship, in so many ways. We, we have ourselves a, a long way to go. Our hearts are never fully engaged. Uh, at least my heart isn't always, because that's just the tendency that we have. And so we're constantly calling out to God to pour out his favor upon us by his grace. That part is to be part of our prayer as well as we live in the days in which we are living. Thirdly, look in chapter 64, verses 1 through 12. And again, we're seeing all of this. There's a sense in which this whole section, uh, 64, 1 through 12, is a call by the prophet, a plea again to God, by the prophet, by the people, for his righteous judgment. I'm making a distinction between the previous section the end of chapter 63, which I think is mainly the focus upon his favor towards his people, to now looking at it from the perspective of a call for God's righteous judgment. The end of that chapter 63 talks about how enemies are now, uh, you know, ruling and living in Jerusalem, trampling the courts of our God. 
hear the, the prophet in this wonderful language of verse 1, which I, I think primarily is a call to judgment. Oh, that you would rend or tear open the heavens as if the heavens are like covered by this, this cloak, if you will, that God would rip them open and tear them open and that God himself would come down. I think he's remembering in these first few verses the coming down of God upon Mount Sinai and the fire and the quakes by his presence that burned up the brush. And there was a danger to even the animals who would step near it. I think that's a plea here for God's righteous judgment to come down upon his adversaries in a way that no one has seen or that, that they have seen before in his judgments upon the enemies of God's people of old. And again, notice verse 8. It's, you are our father. You are our father. That's why we're asking this. It's not done in arrogance. It's done in a holy submission to him. You see that again in verse 8. We are clay. You are the potter. The acknowledgement that God is sovereign over all and that we have no sway over him. We are merely the creatures that he has made. Nonetheless, he pleads with God that he would come down in judgment, restore his beautiful and holy house. And the fullest expression of that, we've already seen it in Isaiah. The house and the beauty of the house is the church of Jesus Christ and the beauty that God bestows upon her in him. And so you see this overall in chapter 64, a call for God's judgment to come down upon their enemies. And then finally, you see also in chapter 64, you saw a little bit of it in chapter 63, where you have sincere confession of sin. You see that primarily, primarily in the second part of verse 5 through verse 7. You also see it in verse 9 where Isaiah speaking for the people declare their uncleanness before him, that their righteous deeds, a verse we quote so often as we have a call to confession, even their righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's very graphic language there, talking about garments that are stained uh, in certain ways. And therefore, God is referring to the pollution of all of our good works. They're all tainted by sin. We fade before his presence like a leaf, verse 6 says. Our iniquities carry us away. There's an acknowledgement here, an ongoing acknowledgement of our ongoing struggle with sin. And that we deserve God's wrath. Nonetheless, in the midst of all of this, he is pleading for God's favor. Verse 7, I think, gives us the heart of the problem. Much like God came and saw that there was no one to save and he his own arms saved his people that we saw earlier. Here in verse 7, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. That's the language of the watchman. What he's saying is there are no watchmen functioning as they should as watchmen. There's no one calling out and laying hold of you and pleading with you for these things. The reason is because of our iniquities, our sins, which have separated us from you. So he's acknowledging his sins. He's also pleading at the same time for God's mercies. And so you see, and I would encourage you to read this as your own prayer, as you consider the full uh, revelation of this in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, this beautiful house that God is building, that he would continue to bless it and to bless her, to strengthen her, that he would not, verse 12, restrain himself in the midst of her persecution and her affliction, but that he would come down, that he would rend the heavens despite our sin, and that he would do his great work for his own name. So thanksgiving to God, a plea for his mercy, a call for righteous judgment of his and our enemies, and a sincere, heartfelt confession of ongoing sin. Those are the marks, I think, of Isaiah's prayer. They're the marks of some of the language we saw from Calvin and Luther and from Bunyan, all of the same kinds of ideas that are part of the elements of prayer. It's part of our own uh, sort of practice of following that acronym of ACTS. All of those elements are there. They're clear. And so I end by applying it this way, by three questions. 
important questions for you and for me this morning. Are you, as you sit here this morning, one who takes hold of God in prayer? Are you one who takes hold of God in prayer? I remember in studying chapter 62 again that we said all of us as believers are watchmen, and therefore all of us are to function as those who take hold of God, who lay hold of him in prayer who will not uh, tire until God delivers and sets his glory upon his church in the earth. Are you this morning uh, one who takes hold of God in prayer? As you think of the Reformation, I mentioned so many who were marked by prayer. John Calvin's treatment of prayer in his institutes is lengthy and very important part of that Uh, work that he did from a young man into his middle years. Uh, John Calvin was a a mentor of John Knox as John Knox came to Calvin in Geneva and as they uh, encouraged one another before Knox returned to Scotland. Most of us know Knox as a a fairly uh, ambitious and sort of wild man, if you will. If you read some elements of his life, he was he was not a quiet man to sit by the sidelines, if you will. He became the leader of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland and the founder of Scottish Presbyterianism. But what others don't realize, one writer says, is that by the end of his ministry, he became more known, well-known for his prayer life than for his other ministries. It was famously noted, and perhaps you've heard this, that the devout Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary, is reputed to have said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Why do you think the queen said this, the author goes on to say? Well, because she saw the impact of Knox's prayer. From a human point of view, it was the prayer of Knox that sparked the Reformation in Scotland. His prayer became the fuel of the ongoing Reformation during his time. His prayer shook the land of Scotland causing revival among God's people. And most of you, if you know anything about Knox, know what he famously said, give me Scotland or I die. It was not an arrogant prayer, but a passionate plea, showing his intense desire for the conversion of the people of Scotland. His prayer was an expression of his great confidence in God. One of Knox's own mottos was, one man with God is always in the majority. Are you and I, like John Knox and so many others, one who takes hold of God in prayer? Have any of us ever prayed, give me these United States or I die? Has anyone ever pleaded for our nation for the sake of the elect within it, that God would have mercy and turn the tides of our day in favor to him that we might again know his blessings? Do we do so with an eye daily to his mercies and covenant promises, laying hold of all of those things in our appeal to him? We're approaching an election. It's Tuesday. Which one of us, which of us here this morning is calling upon his name, laying hold of God on behalf of our nation? There's many things to note about where this nation is. We talk about them often, but are we praying and laying hold of God on behalf. Would not God be pleased for the sake of his elect here in the United States to turn the heart of this nation to him through revival and reformation in our day? We pray it. I pray it every Sunday, sincerely desiring that God would grant these things. Are we laying hold of God? Would he not be pleased as we cry to him to judge the wicked to stop the plans of the evil in our day and to establish righteousness by which this nation would be exalted. Are we praying, laying hold of God? Secondly, are you remembering his mercy and his grace to you? I say that as a point of application because it's by remembering his mercies that will drive you to prayer. There is no other outlet if you remember his mercies than to give him thanks through prayer. There's nothing else we can do with it. We don't simply meditate and think to ourselves. We immediately turn it to God as the one who granted us such mercy and grace, withheld his wrath, and did not judge us as we deserved. 
and poured out blessing upon blessing, innumerable beyond our ability to number. If we think of those daily, if we remember them daily, then our lips will constantly be moving in expressions of thanksgiving to him. And we will pray and we will persevere in prayer because his mercies and grace are endless to us. And so we will never stop as we think upon those things and remember them. And then finally, to the same point, are you then, are you then thankful? Are you thankful? We're entering a season of Thanksgiving where uh, we're going to express our thanks to God publicly as we gather for Thanksgiving Eve as we do each year. Thanksgiving season is upon us, but it's a season that we repeat year after year. But it ought to be the pattern of our lives. And as I said earlier, prayerless Christians are thankless Christians. There's no other way to say it. If we are prayerless, then we are thankless. Prayer is the most spiritual thing we do as believers. In it, we acknowledge our total dependence upon the Lord. Prayer, by its very nature, is a rejection of self and the acknowledgement that God is the potter and we really are the clay. It is self-abasing and God-exalting. That's what prayer is. It exalts God so his name would be established not only in our lives, but in this nation and in this world. We will no doubt continue to wrestle in prayer for so many things that we seek regarding our families, the health needs that all of us are aware of. We will pray fervently and seek God. We will lay hold of him, I trust. You can do that as you just simply begin. If you've not developed a pattern of prayer, I encourage you. There's no way to do it unless you first begin. Begin to pray. Take your bulletin. We do it this way each week, each month, each year, so that you would have something that you can intercede for on behalf of the people that God has brought you into connection with. Lay hold of God for these things. Give him no rest until he establishes his church upon the earth. Prayer really is all of his grace. It's about his kindness to us. We commune with God in prayer in heaven. We have access through Christ, through his intercession, to the very throne of God, to make our requests known to him and to unburden our hearts before him. And so we do it daily. This prayer of Isaiah is not a moment in time. This was the expression of Isaiah's heart as a prophet, looking at God's wrath in view of his mercies and grace, and he poured out his heart to him. It's a pattern, a picture of our prayer life as well. Let us remember that he is our father, that every moment of every day we have access to him. We can literally go to him in this moment, in tomorrow's moment, in every moment of every day of our lives and unburden our hearts to the one who is able to listen, to hear, and to answer. Paul says it this way to the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That's a picture of laying hold of God, of, of claiming the promises that he has given, praying in accordance with those promises. This week, as I was studying, I came across and was reminded of a wonderful illustration that really highlights this. Much like Luther, when he deals with his barber and talks about prayer, also a wonderful uh, treatment. You can buy that book and learn about prayer through Luther's barber as he talked and dialogued with him about prayer. But this is a similar one in the life of John Newton, the great 18th century reformer. He was on the, obviously, a little bit later than the Reformation, but he was on their shoulders. Uh, one of the great authors of some of the great hymns that we sing, including, of course, Amazing Grace. But in his life, Newton made it a practice uh, to meet with other ministers to encourage one another and a side note, that's probably why we didn't have a Reformation service this year, because we weren't meeting as ministers. That's where that came out of. So that's our fault. We'll try to correct that for next year, but we're looking forward to tonight. But Newton would meet with these men. They would handle questions. They would just share a question and share their spontaneous insights and answers. They would write them down, and they are recorded in a book that you can get uh, from Newton and these other men with whom he would gather. 
And one time they got together, they, they asked each other this question. What does it mean? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? After sharing all of their answers together and being encouraged, one of the ministers turned to the Scottish maid girl who was there, who had been serving them and who no doubt had heard their discussion. And the minister said to her, maybe you can tell us, what do you think the Bible means when it calls us to pray without ceasing? Oh, sirs, she said, that is not a problem. When I get up in the morning and clothe myself, I pray, O Lord, clothe me with thy righteousness today. When I set food out for you as you prepared to gather, I prayed, O Lord, feed me with thy bread of life today. And when I set out the drinks for you, I prayed, O Lord, be thou my water of life today. And when I dusted the furniture before you came, I prayed, O Lord, take away all the filth out of my heart. So, sirs, you see, I just kind of pray my way like that through the whole day. Now, that is a picture in its simplest form of someone who has laid hold of God and will not relent until his glory is established upon the earth. May it be true with us as well. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful picture this is, a pray without ceasing kind of saint whose mind is filled all the day with the thoughts of your mercy and grace and of your love, of your kindness in Christ, who understands her great need. May that be true of every one of us as we consider these things. Make us to be a people who will not relent, who will not leave, who will not draw away until you have established your glory upon the earth through your church. Stir our hearts to prayer and thanksgiving, we pray, this season and always, and grant us these things for the sake of Christ our Savior and the glory of your name, we pray in his name. Amen.